One of the things that we um, get to decide in this life is um, what's fundamental, right? What's a, of, it's actually the fundamental basis for, for, for our life. So for the last, I don't know, 500 years, maybe it's been quite fashionable to um, believe that, um, you know, the, the material world, the physical world is what's fundamental, right? And um, as a consequence, that aspect has been uh, on the ascendant, right? More and more the focus of our everyday life, more and more the focus of society as a whole, more and more where the, you know, the evolutionary movement of humans is taking us is more and more into that materialistic world, the physical world, you know, with some incredible successes, you know, in a relatively short time, right? We got to give it that and consequences. Um, in the belief that that is what's primary, that is what's most important, that's fundamentally how this world works, is that um, the world's materialistic, right? Um, that, and by that I'm, I don't, um, I just mean that the belief that the physical world is what's primary. And um, a corollary of that is that if the physical world's primary, this physicality, this body-mind, is um, a identifiable, separate entity within that material world. Yes? And um, out of that belief comes a sense of separation. I'm here, everything else is out there, and it's uh, a material world um, and the um, what will give me pleasure in this life is what's important, you know, and what I want to do within this time that I have is to extract as much pleasure as I can from being in the world, however I define that. You know, it can be relatively functional. <laughs> You know, or it could be quite dysfunctional. However, you know we choose to pursue that that pleasure. But the presumption is that I'm separate. This physicality. This is what I am. This body. This mind. And um, the world is out there to to be explored. You know, and almost sort of think of it as the like the mining industry. You know. The world is meant for extraction, you know, for whose benefit? For mine. You know, it's, it's, it's a quite a logical conclusion to be drawn if the starting assumption is what's primary is this physicality, this physical world, what I see, what I perceive, that's it. And so, you know, we can have whatever judgments we have about the state of the world these days, but I would suggest that a large part of that is 
um, a consequence of that kind of thinking, that what is fundamental is the physicality, is the material world. And so from that perspective, you know, we can bemoan the state of the world these days, but I, I would say it's, it's an accurate reflection of the state of consciousness that we've arrived at. In that sense, it's perfect, perfect reflection. <laughs> right. As it should be. If that's, if that's sort of, you know, as taken as a whole, you know, the consciousness of humans at, at this time, you know, based on what's happened over the last few hundred years, this is, this is, this is where it's led to. So the only reason for, I mean, other than to state the obvious, the only other reason for mentioning that is that um, there's a consequence to what we take to be fundamental. You know, if we take um, this physicality, this form, this body-mind to be um, what we are, then that assumption has consequences. Consequences on how we live our life, how we relate to other people, how we think about ourselves in the world as consequences. And we can, you know, I mean, people, you know, with, um, you know, some effort and attention and, you know, a certain degree of um, authenticity and integrity, you know, can do that fairly well. That's great. But then it, it still begs the question, is that, is that the entirety of it? And if the assumption is, yes, that's what I've got to work with, you know, I've got this body, I've got this thinking mind, and, uh, you know, my job is to, to make the best of it. You know, so if that's, if that's our, our belief, then we're on the self-improvement path. Anybody tried that one? You know, I am going to improve myself to the point that I'm happy, right? I'm comfortable. I feel at home in this world. I feel at home in this body. I feel at home in this, my, what's happening internally in my thinking mind. I'm okay with it. That's, that's where, that's where I'm going. And I'm improving my way towards that. Okay, good. Anybody get there yet? I mean, where it just feels like, yeah, finally, I feel just complete. Everything's good. You know, we can do it on the inside. We could try to do it on the outside. You know, we can try to change society and elect the right people and change the laws and all of that. But it's still, it's still based on the underlying assumption that what we've got to work with is this material world. Material out there that I see, material here. 
that that's what we're working with and that's that's the journey that we're on and the difficulty with that is <laughs> um, is is the law of unintended consequences you know the you know you know I mean, I think in general, not entirely, of course, but in general, people think that they're doing things for the betterment, a betterment of themselves, betterment of the society, working towards some greater good, you know, future improvement. And, um, but again, when the underlying assumption is that this is the entirety of it, um, the result well, the results speak for themselves, right? But the, the underlying assumption is still an assumption. It's a, an assumption that what is fundamentally real is this. You know, this is what science has insisted on. You know, if, um, you know, this is sort of the sort of generally accepted um, yardstick for determining what reality is, science. You know, if it can't be proven, you know, double-blind experiments, then it's not real, right? That's, that's how we know what's real, science, right? But, but science has its own set of rules, you know, and in that sense, it's almost like a religion. It has, as long as you're operating within that set of rules, it makes sense. But it leaves out things that we, you know, when we stop and think about it, it leaves out things that we know are more important than that. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't quite have room for love and compassion and companionship and brotherhood and all, all of those kinds of things. Because they can't be measured, they can't be reduced to material existence. So, and then, and then lately, um, well, in the last hundred years or so, uh, science has begun to struggle with this problem of consciousness, right? So it's like they don't quite know what to do about that. You know, the assumption has been, well, you know, the brain has a lot of cells up there, we don't quite know how they, it does it, but somehow they come up with consciousness. You know, the, the physicality of the cellular existence in our head somehow produces this anomaly almost called consciousness. Don't quite understand it, but it must be happening there because why? Because we presumed that the fundamental nature is the material world. So we start with that and try to figure out how everything else fits into it. So, I mean, they've sort of contorted themselves, I'm talking about scientists now, sort of contorted themselves to try to make sense of this. So they call it the hard problem of consciousness. You know, how, how did consciousness arise from these cells? And they've 
done all kinds of research and can figure out what part of the brain's, you know, if you stimulate it, this, something happens. If this, if your brain gets injured here, you can't see anymore. <laughs> That's just function, it's not consciousness. Yes? It's, I mean, it's just that capacity of the brain to process information. So they haven't, they haven't been able to figure out what, how this consciousness happens, but they presume that if they just, they just haven't gotten there yet, just more research and then one day they'll figure, figure that out. And they've also tried to um, say, well, you know, rather than consciousness being outside of science or outside of the material world, they just say, well, everything's conscious. Right? You know, humans are, you know, animals are, plants are, um, rocks, atoms, you know, every, everything has some degree of consciousness. But that's just total speculation, right? It's starting with the assumption that what's fundamental is the material world, and then we try to force, force some concept on it that will sort of maintain the underlying presumption that what's real is the material world. So one of the um, consequences of the belief in um, an objective external world is that that's, that's what's permanent. I mean, it's changing, of course, but it's permanent. And then me, as a separate entity, sort of enters that material world for some period of time and then, and then exits, exits stage right, you know? And so that's, that's the working model. But that whole model, that entire model starts out with a presumption. The presumption is what's most real is this physicality. That's what it starts out with. And then it, it goes from there to try to make sense of it, to try to fit everything into that assumption. So that's, that's one way we can live life, look at life. But like I said, when we, when we do that, it has, that has consequences, that, that line of assumptions. So the question is, is there another possibility? Is there another way of looking at what's happening? And what I'd suggest is that the other way of looking at it is to, rather than look to science or philosophy or whatever to sort of tell us what is, how things work, is that we can check it out for ourselves, you know? I mean, we have the unique opportunity of actually existing within this existence. So if we go outside of ourselves in hopes that you know, a scientist or philosopher or culture or 
someone else will tell us how things are. We have the unique opportunity of actually being what it is that we're trying to investigate. So why not use that? That instrument, you could say, to check out for ourselves what this is really about. So we can do that, right? So when we notice what's happening, one of the things that feels elusive but is actually ever-present is just this capacity that we all innately have to experience things, right? To notice whatever it is that's happening. I mean, we can notice things, you know, on the outside, so to speak. We can notice things on the inside. We can feel things that happen to these bodies. We can notice what we think, what we feel. But that capacity to notice all of that is, is our everyday experience, is it not? I mean, we dismiss it like, well, yeah, sure. Everybody has that, so what's the big deal? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's already present. That's why it's the easiest thing in the world to dismiss because we don't have to do anything to create it. But isn't that our actual direct experience? Every, every perception that we have about the, what appears to be this, you know, solid outside world, you know, magnificent creation, incredible, our, every, our only experience of it ever is within what we perceive. Right? So we can take, uh, let's just take the sense of seeing, right? We can all look down and see the river. I think you can see it from back there, but anyway, it's there if you can't. Um, and we, I mean, in casual conversation, we can say, oh, the river's over there, and I see it. There's the proof that it exists out there. But the, I mean, what's actually happening, I mean, this isn't theory or philosophy or anything, but what's actually happening is that, um, you know, the light is being reflected off the river, enters our eyeballs. Eyeballs don't have a clue what it is. It's just light, light information passes that on to the brain. The brain has seen a river before and says, oh, it's a river. You know, it sort of recon somehow very mysteriously reconstitutes that image of, you know, a million bits of light entering our eyeball, reconstitutes it in the brain. But if there were no one at home to know that was happening, 
you wouldn't know if the river was there or not. You wouldn't know if you were there or not, right? If there's no one home. Sort of be like having your TV set on at home and you went to the store. So that capacity, that knowingness, that awareness of that image that appears in our mind is our reality. That's the entirety of our reality. What appears within consciousness. So then we can ask again, well, what's really fundamental? You know, is it the river or is it this awareness? If it's the river, then we're still back in the material game, you know, where everything's reduced to the material fact. One of the material facts is that this body-mind will age and will one day die. That's, that's a given. But this other, the, this other possibility is that um, the recognition that this awareness is where our entire experience happens. Nothing has ever happened outside of this awareness. You wouldn't be aware of it, right? <laughs> Everybody aware right now, by the way? So that's the awareness that I'm talking about. I remember when I first started um, going to listen to Adi Ashanti, one, one of his favorite phrases was um, garden variety awareness, right? Everyday awareness. And uh, I, I, for the first, um, I don't know, eight or nine months, I um, was listening to him. Uh, I listened to him a lot, like several hours a day. And I don't know how many times I heard that expression, garden variety awareness, I don't know, maybe a hundred in those eight or nine months. And I don't know, maybe it was the hundred and first time it was like, oh, you mean that awareness? <laughs> you know, that awareness that's sort of always present, always has been, you mean that? I was looking for some other kind of awareness. I was looking for some kind of special awareness, you know, spiritual awareness, pure awareness. I mean, it just totally surprised me. It's like, oh. But that, that's the awareness that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about anything that's not fully present already. So the awareness that's functioning in everyone, including everyone here at this moment and at all times, is already complete. There's not, there's not gradations of awareness. You don't, I know in spirituality they talk a lot about becoming more aware. Awareness is fine. It doesn't need to, it doesn't need our effort to improve it. It's complete already. When it, 
you know, I think what people maybe unintentionally mean by becoming more aware is um, introducing less thought to, to obscure the awareness that's already there. The awareness is complete in itself. Your awareness and the Buddha's awareness, same. No difference. Utterly the same. Already. So what feels elusive about it is that it is simple, it is ever-present, it is already present. So we can, we can disregard it. And we've learned to do that over the course of the lifetime because what appears within awareness is so fascinating. Right? There's a lot going on out there. <laughs> it's really interesting. And so our attention is pulled out. The awareness is fine. The awareness is what notices where it gets pulled to. It may not have any recognition of itself as awareness, but it's fully present. You know, we, we may be daydreaming about, you know, Fiji Islands, you know, on a vacation that we never took there or whatever. But whenever, even when that's happening, there's something that's aware of that daydream. You know, so the attention may be somewhere else, but the awareness is just its absolutely fine. So it's not a matter of attaining this awareness. It's not a matter of improving our way to get there. It's, not a, it's especially not a matter of being worthy of it. Anybody worthy of being aware? I mean, what, what would you have to do? I mean, what? Act. To earn it. To be worthy of it. So that's the gift, right? The gift's already been given. <laughs> the gift's already been given. The only, the only real question is whether um, we'll receive it or not, recognize it or not. So the, the mystery of it, the real magic of it, is that there's something about us, about all of us inherently already, that has the capacity to notice all of this. I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? You, you could have exactly the same life as you do now and not have this awareness. Just what would it, what would it look like? I mean, it would just be going through life in zombie-like fashion, right? Same things could be happening, but if there was no one, nobody home 
to notice that. So this, when we look for ourselves and see what's actually happening just firsthand rather than relying on, you know, science or philosophy or culture to tell us what's important. But if we look at what is our actual direct experience, we can see that this awareness is fundamental. And from that perspective, what does the world look like? I mean, what's our direct experience of it? I mean, it has several characteristics, right? Every moment's a little different, always changing. You know, sometimes that's, um, you know, Buddhism, they call it impermanence, but it's somehow presented like it's, you know, sort of a fact of life, but it's almost presented like it's an unfortunate fact of life, you know. If life was only permanent, you know, that would be better. But it's actually what, make, what allows life to happen. You know, if there were impermanence, um, I don't know. We'd still all be infants, right? We'd never actually change. You know, the acorn would never become a tree. I mean, not, nothing would happen if everything was permanent. So, uh, yes, it's impermanent. Everything's changing uh, all the time. So one question is, are we okay with that? Are we, are we on board with that or not? You know, and you can sense into it, you know, just from a, you can sense it into your body. You know, something happens that you don't want to happen. You know, it doesn't, doesn't feel, you know, we try to resist it. We try to manage our experience. And that's fine. I mean, that's sort of natural. But the, the question is, um, how quickly can we come into acceptance of what's happening? Like, it, it's like life is happening, and then I'm judging whether that's okay or not. Like it's somehow, I've, I've assigned myself the role of deciding whether life is headed in the right direction or not that somehow I've promoted myself to God, right? I get to judge what's right, what's wrong. How somebody else should be, how I should be, how the world should be. It's my role.
but we can just sense into that when we, when we have that perspective, when we feel sort of an, entitled to do that. Um, I mean, you can sort of feel just in your body how that separates you from whatever's happening. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that we don't have to um, uh, act, uh, do things. It doesn't, doesn't disable us from functioning in the world, but it, it removes our um, opposition to what's happening. You know, removes our argument to whatever may be arising and acknowledge, yep, that's what's happening. In this moment, that's what's happening. So it gets rid of all the, uh, the energy that could be spent um, arguing with that. You know, sort of, um, what's it? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about, you know, the five stages of the end of life and, um, you know, we don't need to go through all of them. For one reason, I probably can't remember them, but the, uh, you know, talks about, you know, denial and argument and, you know, finally coming to acceptance. You know, and, you know, that, that may be true at the end of life, but we do it all the time, right? Something happens, the first thing we can do, oh, God, I can't believe that, you know? That can't be right. Why did they do that? You know, we're already arguing with that and expending that energy. So the question is, does that go on for days or hours or minutes? Or can you get through it in seconds and come to say, okay, that's what's happening. Now what, do I, what am I going to do? You know, is there anything I can do? Maybe, maybe not. And get on with it. Right? It's the same, exactly the same process, only, you know, we get to do it every day. Coming, how much time is it going to take for us to come into an alignment with what's happening? And then, and then work from there. So it doesn't disable us in any way. It actually um, saves us a great deal of energy that would otherwise be just squandered in arguing with what's happening. So when this awareness um, looks out at the world um, from, from awareness and recognizing that what is actually our experience, our, how that experience always presents itself is moment to moment always changing, always unique. Never to be repeated. And when we begin to see the world in that way, there's, there's some magic that re returns to it. We don't, we don't see it as sort of a fixed 
outside world that we stand apart from. It's actually, um, it actually our direct experience is that it is happening within what we are. Yes? No? <laughs> Isn't it? Every, everything that we've ever experienced in our entire life happens within this awareness. Only ever happens in the moment, and it happens as appearances within this awareness. And that's, that's the beauty of it, that's the magic of it. And that's also the freedom of it, because we get to participate and yet, this awareness is not subject to the same law of impermanence that everything else is. Right? Everything, everything else that we can imagine, see, touch, feel, has a form to it. Right? A tree has a form, birds have a form, um, the hearing that we experience has a form, thinking has a form, feeling has a form, his body certainly have a form. All forms come and go. Right? They, have, they have different characteristics, but they all have some characteristic. They have a characteristic in space, they have a characteristic in time. They have a characteristic in how we feel about them. So that's all on this side of the ledger over here. And on the other side is consciousness. Consciousness is the one thing that doesn't have a form. Formless. We talked about that earlier. No form, no shape, no size. It's been there for as long as we can remember. The consciousness that was present Two minutes ago was the same consciousness that was present 20 years ago. Not subject to change. So it's the one thing that's not in the same world of form. Form appears within it. Right? We think, we think, we imagine that we appear in the world of form, me walking around out in that world. But the, the reality, our own direct experience is that the world, everything we've ever experienced happens within this awareness that I am, that we all are. It's not, not, not true. So when we, when we view life, when we walk around out in the world and 
there's a recognition that this is all happening within the awareness that I am, does the world not feel less scary? It feels less scary that me as a vulnerable body, you know, can it be hurt? Mind, psyche can certainly be hurt. And the world certainly has the capacity to do that. That feels risky, doesn't it? But when, when the recognition is, no, what I, what I actually am is this awareness and everything I see, everything I've ever felt, tasted, touched, experienced, happens within, within this spaciousness. Amazing. It changes. changes our experience. You know, and we can ask, we can just inquire, well, I wonder if this awareness is what I am, or is it just sort of a function of my brain cells? You know, do you know? Good. Good. It's good to acknowledge that. Okay, I don't know. I don't know. It, but it's a worthy question, right? So I'll, I'll just leave it as a question. You know, so none of this is about answering conceptually. Well, so-and-so said that it's, you know, what I am is consciousness, so I'll go with that. You know, that's actually not helpful. <laughs> What is helpful is, is to really sit with the question. You know, the other night we were talking about good questions. So this is a good question. Like, I wonder if what I am is actually consciousness. I wonder if that's actually true. Could, it, could that actually be the case? And the first step is to acknowledge, well, I, actually, I don't know. I've been taught that, no, that's not true. Most of, you know, 99 point whatever percent of other people believe, no, what consciousness is, is a product of the brain cells. Why do they believe that? Because that's what they were taught. But we have the opportunity to actually look for ourselves. Like, you know, when I actually, well, you know, you know, here I am in the right smack in the middle of existence, and I have the opportunity to be in this body-mind, and so I get, I, I'll, I'll check it out for myself. I don't have to go out to depend on somebody else's body-mind. I've got one here. I can, I can look here. <laughs> it's an opportunity. It's, it's sort of like the difference between sitting in the front row seat you know, or sitting, you know, or watching it over closed circuit TV, you know. So we can just see for ourselves whether, um, you really take a look at this awareness because it is, it is a mysterious thing. I mean, even science has to admit that. They, they don't, they don't really know.
So it is, it is a mysterious thing. So we can, um, the way to work with a mystery isn't try to, you know, adopt a, a good belief about it. Because that, a belief is just another word that means you don't know. You know, it's just another way of say, <laughs> saying that. So we can just explore it and allow ourselves to be in the mystery because the one thing about awareness is that you will never understand it. You can live from it. You can be recognized that that is your true nature, but you will never understand it. You know, and that's, that's what the mind is trying to do. The mind is trying to, you know, sort of wrap its arms around it to try to reduce it to something that it can understand, but the mind can only, its only capacity is to work within concepts, work within words, right? I mean, that's, that's, its, um, that's its vocabulary. It's, it, it's limited to words and concepts. And what we're talking about here is something that's more real than any concept will ever be. So in order to access that, to become familiar with that, um, we have to consent to going beyond the mind. Going beyond the mind means going beyond thought. doesn't mean that we have to make thoughts stop. That's a whole different ballgame. We don't, don't have to, you don't have to spend the next 25 years trying to do that. You can allow the mind to sort of chatter in the background. It's sort of like when you get onto the elevator and they're playing, you know, some, you know, third hand rendition of some song you used to know. You're not looking to it for inspiration, right? You're not looking to, to it to be up, uplifted. It's just something to occupy your mind for the next 30 seconds. So we can just allow the... But you don't, get, you don't get pissed off at the elevator music, right? Well, I guess you could, but <laughs> it's unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's sort of like that. It's, it's the mind will continue to talk to itself. And, and if we oppose it, it'll talk to itself louder. It's the way it works. Because we're, we're energizing it by our opposition, which is just another thought. So we're arguing with ourself. That, that won't make it more quiet. What'll actually settle it down is just Leave it alone. May take a while, but it's the only, it's the only really permanent way to deal with it. It may still talk to itself occasionally, but you're not, if you're not opposed to it, it's not a problem. 
And it's not, it's not where our attention is. It's just something that's happening in the background. And we can leave our attention free to spend some time beyond the conceptual. So by conceptual, I just mean the attempts of the mind to um, reduce our experience of reality to a statement, an idea, right? Which is always, always going to be less than a reality. You know, Any, anybody care to make a, a statement about whatever it is that we're looking at? Sort of something that would fully encapsulate the experience. You know, it's just anything you could say about it will be far, far less than the reality of it. But that's that's what we tend to do. You know, we see it's like a stunning sunset, and the first thing we do is, oh, what a beautiful sunset! You know, <laughs> we've reduced that experience to the word beautiful. Just what the minds do. It's what it's what they've learned to do. It's not it's not bad. It's just what what they've learned to do. So we can since we've learned it, we can also see that it's you know, where it has value and where it doesn't. It's, it's not like the mind is bad. You know, the mind is incredibly useful, you know, when, when you need it, you know. It's just like a shovel is, is a wonderful tool when you need a shovel. You know, if you need to make a phone call, you know, it's not the right tool. So we're not saying anything bad about the mind. It's not the bad guy in this spiritual endeavor. It's just, um, it has limited, um, it can take us to a certain point, but not beyond that point. And the point that it can take us to usefully is um, using it to see what we're not. That, that we can use it for to see all the ways that we've identified ourselves as being, I don't know, lots of ways. You know, I'm a happy person, I'm a honest person, I'm a um, judgmental person, I'm a this or that. You know, and we can, we can look at all those different, you know, or we could look at our profession, we could look at our, um, you know, political affiliations, we can look at all kinds of things. And um, we can see that, yes, on a conventional level, those things are relatively true. But are, is any one of them really who I am? I mean, the entirety of what I am, the reality of what I am, is it? And we can see, we can just you know, use our thinking capacity and say, well, yes, sometimes I am judgmental. That's true. But a lot of times I'm not. So a statement like that is, you know, at best only partially true.
not entirely true. You know, or I am a fair person. Always? Well, not always. <laughs> so we can see any way we characterize ourselves. It's only at best true sometimes. You know, we can even say, well, you know, the one thing I can be certain of is that I am a mother. I have a daughter. That, that I know. That's what happens when you don't remember that? You know, like the 98% of your life when that's not in your consciousness, you're thinking about, you're watching a movie, you know? Do you have a daughter in that moment? Not as far as you know. And that's, I mean, we can, you know, see, you know, quite easily that that is where life happens in this moment. It's the only place it ever happens. You know, for all the times that spiritual people try to try to be in the now. Any anybody ever succeeded in being anywhere else? You know, we can think about being something happened last week or tomorrow, what will happen tomorrow. But the only time we can think about that is in the present moment. It's inescapable. So we can use the mind uh, to really look at all these ways that we define ourselves and to see that, yes, on a conventional level, you know, when I'm out talking with friends or family, you know, it makes sense to talk at that, that level. Great. Works. When I go to work, that's what's needed. Okay. But, you know, if we're in this game to really find out what's true, then, then we need to look a little deeper than that. And that's, that's, what we, that's what we get to choose, all of us. I mean, whether we're in spirituality or not, um, it's really all one, one seeking, right? I see everybody's seeking. You know, it's not just spiritual people. Everybody's seeking. Everybody's just trying to figure out how to make it work, how to, how to be reasonably happy how to try to make sure nothing too bad happens before they die. And all different ways of doing that. But there's, um, we, we get to choose wh what we're in this for. One way uh, spirituality can be used is just to feel better, you know. How do I get enough out of this that I, that I feel okay, you know. Life looks better. That's okay. I mean, that's probably how most of us got into it. 
you know, just looking for a little peace, a little happiness, a different perspective. But if we're in it solely to gain comfort, it's different than if we're in it to find out what's really true. If we're in it to find out what's really true, sometimes it won't be comfortable. Sometimes, you know, we'll get dragged through the swamp. Just, you know, to see something that we may not want to see. Be willing to look at something that we may have not wanted to look at before. And at that point, it makes a difference whether we're in it for our own comfort or whether we're in it for finding out what's actually true, what's really true. It makes a big difference. But the good news is what's true is already true. What's, what's true is that you are um, already what you seek. A lot of people have said that. You are already what you seek. We think we're seeking it sort of beyond ourselves, outside ourselves. You know, not, not me, not this. Couldn't be. But the, the actually, the good news is that um, we seek and seek and seek and then discover that it was there all along. So it's not, it's really, this journey is really not about an attainment. It's not about becoming something that we're not now. It's not going from hell to heaven. It's not going from unenlightened to enlightened. It's discovering what is already present. Complete, fully. What obscures it is all the stuff that we imagine that's true, that's not. That's what obscures it. It's the only thing that can. If, if not for things that we believe, what would obscure it? So the good news is that it's not a journey to become something that we're not already. It's, it's really discovering what we already are. That's the, and when that is discovered, it's, it's both embarrassing and hilarious. <laughs> it's embarrassing because, you know, it's like, how could I have missed that for decades? And it's hilarious at the same time, you know, just because it was like this close all the time, the whole time. So it's not, it's not, 
at all distant. It's, it's actually the most intimate thing imaginable. That's why it's not out anywhere. It's the most intimate thing. And we miss it because we keep looking out there. You know, we can be looking out in life for, you know, pleasurable experiences and successes and joy and peace out there. And um, there's just enough of those experiences that happens that keeps us engaged. It's sort of like Las Vegas. There's enough payoffs that keeps you in front of the machine. But with this, um, the recognition of what we truly are, there's a, um, there's a sense of, of peace and contentedness, contentedness that comes with that. Um, that is, that remains, it's sold as bliss, right? That's the marketing, it's sold as bliss, and it can feel like that for a while, but it settles down to um, contentment. Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle talks about that. He said, um, you know, when, it, when he first woke up, yeah, there was bliss, mind-blowing bliss. But he said it was only in comparison to what I was experiencing before. That, um, that after a while, uh, I realized that that was my natural state, and then it settled into contentment. And it's not, it's, I mean, it, it, it's true that even, even in you know, some years afterwards, there can still be moments of bliss, but things, things level out a lot. You know, there's not the agony and there's not the ecstasy to that extent and that up and down movement. It's, um, but contentment is very nice. 